Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to an exciting new episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's really awesome to have you along. Euros Hartley's is very proud to be a leader in the field of wealth management and financial services within WA. Our private wealth team prides itself on being the go-to wealth manager over the long term that can cater for varying and different ambitions, goals and objectives. If you'd like to learn more about the wealth management services we can provide, please visit our website at www.eurosheartleys.com. This episode, we have both a wonderful and privileged opportunity to have a great chat with Mr. Jeff Quartermain, the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of rapidly growing African gold producer, developer and explorer, Perseus Mining, stock code PRU. Jeff, who grew up in far north Queensland, has had more than 30 years experience in senior corporate, financial and strategic management roles and has had some seriously amazing experiences in a career that has seen him journey to places such as Papua New Guinea, the Philippines and then spend the past 12 years focused on West Africa with Perseus Mining building the company into the business it is today with a market capitalization currently in excess of $2 billion. So, without further ado, it gives me absolute pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, a great guy and the MD and CEO of Perseus Mining, Mr. Jeff Quarterman. Hi, Jeff. And welcome along to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It is so good to have you on the show. It really is such a treat. And I must say, I know you're a very busy person, so thank you for taking the time out. It's really appreciated. And on behalf of all of us at Euros Hartley's, thank you. No, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. So look, I did a little bit of homework and I noticed that you were brought up in the mighty far north Queensland, FNQ, as they call it. How was that? And, and and can we get a little bit of background there? Yeah, no, sure. I mean, uh, it was fine. It's the short answer. I mean, it's a uh, you know fairly remote part of Australia. In, in fact, in those days, it was extremely remote. Yes, uh, less so now, I guess. But no, well, look, my father was uh, involved in the the Commonwealth Bank as a bank manager, and they used to move the managers around from town to town every three years, I think it was. So we lived in a in a range of uh, of places around North Queensland, and. You know, I went to school there, grew up there, you know, had a lot of experiences, some of which are actually quite relevant to what's happening at this stage of my life. Yeah, it was an interesting time and as a family it was probably, you know, the most enjoyable years of our life as a family, I would say. So you were part of a family of five, you had two older sisters? That's correct, yeah. And what was your sort of feel for it? Were you in the sort of rural areas around the sort of sugarcane and the banana growing areas or...? Well, we did live down, lived there. Um, that's on the coast of Queensland, and then Dad got moved up to Atherton, up on the Tablelands. Yes, and, and I guess it was the Atherton Mariba years, which were most influential because that was where I sort of, you know, was starting to, you know, grow up a bit. 
So the, yeah, it was in in rural rural settings and yeah, lovely place. I've visited many times actually since then, and you know it's an amazing part of the world, very well kept secret. A little bit like West Australia in that respect. <laughs> yeah. Growing up, did you go to school in? I suppose the largest uh, metropolis there was Cairns. Oh yeah, well Cairns was Cairns was you know the largest city there. But no, I went to um, I, I did do a little bit of schooling in Cairns, but we moved to Atherton and Mariba, and I went to the local primary schools there. And yes, you know I didn't really. I, I think I, when I went to boarding school, which was a little bit later, and my first game of football rugby I played there, it was the first time I'd ever worn rugby boots in my life. <laughs> and this I'm about thirteen or something, so. You know, up until then, we played sport, you know, in amongst the prickles out in the paddocks and, uh, you know, with all the local kids and it was great. Oh, fantastic. And tell me a little bit about your mum. Was she flat out looking after you three? Oh, well, she would say so, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, mum, mum, I guess in today's parlance, was a stay-at-home mum. She, she looked after the family and I think she did a pretty fine job. Yeah, fantastic. You said you just went, you went from that primary schooling through to secondary schooling where you went away and started boarding. Was that when you were about 12, 13? Yeah, about 13, I think it was. Yeah, yes. something like that. Yeah. What school was that? Well, it was uh, Churchy or Church of England Grammar School in Brisbane and it was an, a major cultural shock coming from far north Queensland down to the capital city of Queensland. And I was fortunate I had a teacher in my final year in primary school in North Queensland who knew that I was going to take this step and he sort of uh, gave me some special tuition to try and help me get up the curve a bit in terms of, you know, uh, fitting into the new, the new surroundings. And that was sort of fairly helpful. But when I got down to Brisbane, it was serious culture shock, you know. Yes. Like we had a black and white television set that we would, you know, look at occasionally and it would be all snowy covered and, and I'd get to Brisbane and the kids are talking about this show and that show. And probably for the first year and a half, I had no idea what half these kids were talking about. It was like <laughs> on a different planet. But... You know, it was an interesting thing because I, I did play a lot of sport and as you would know, you know, sport is almost the international language, you know, opens a lot of doors and puts you into different situations and so that was very helpful in my integration into a very different world. Did you feel like when you came from far north Queensland you were quite remote? Oh, look, I'd never thought about it, to be frank. Only in, in hindsight I know we were very remote. Yes. I mean, uh, for us to travel from where we lived to Townsville, in those days, it was like a you know almost a full day journey, and it was a major event. Well, now you'd hop in the car and probably pop down for a cup of coffee at, in the morning, same distance. So yes, yes. It's a way different place today to what it was, you know, about all those years ago. Did you spend a lot of time going up through the top end? No, no, not really at all. I mean, in those days, that wasn't a thing. No. You know, obviously now with ecotourism and all this sort of thing, it is more accessible, but it was very inaccessible in those days. Yes. And it's become such an industry up there now. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It's a different place to what it was. It is very interesting because a lot of the guys that lived there were fellows who had actually fought in Papua New Guinea during the, the Second World War. Right. And rather than coming back down to the south of Australia, they settled in far north Queensland. And my father, who was also a returned serviceman, you know, was friends with a lot of these people. And, I'd, you know, they'd come and talk and you'd hear them, you know, their, their conversations. And, I mean, they thought, you know, very poorly of their uh, Japanese opponents and things like that. Now, you know, fast forward 20 or 30 years, into a, uh, Cairns became a, a major destination for the Japanese tourist trade and there was a lot of signs and restaurants and things like that. So it was quite remarkable to see over that period of time this uh, amazing Change. transformation in attitudes and, you know, and just the whole scale of the place. Yes, that's actually very interesting. And thanks for sharing that. 
When you went from this sort of environment, which was clearly a very happy time, going to boarding school and leaving the family, was that tough? Yeah, it was tough in some respects. Yep. In other respects, it was just an amazing challenge for me. Yeah. You know, so I guess, you know, when you're that age, you just Roll with it. go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> and so schooling, I mean, if we look back at schooling over that time, did you enjoy it overall? Oh, I loved it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I was reasonably uh, capable scholar and, you know, sports person. So, you know, I had absolute whale of a time. I didn't have brothers, per, you know, like I had plenty of mates, but I didn't have any brothers. But when I went to boarding school, I had a whole pile of brothers right there and there, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and we used to knock about and have a, have a lovely time. So this brings us to the question that we often ask with regards to that period of your life. And you're coming out of school and you've clearly, you've done okay in the academic side. You're, you're loving your sport. Did you know what you wanted to do when you had that option of going to university? Absolutely not. I've told people this story a few times. I mean, I remember we had to make an application for university. I mean, you know, it was all sort of decided that we'd go to university, but none of us knew what we were going to do. So a bunch of us sat down in the dormitory the night before the things had to go in and we said, well, well what are you going to do? And some guy said, oh, yeah, I think I might do medicine. And I was like, oh, God, couldn't stand the sight of blood. No way in the world. One guy wanted to become a vet and going, you know, do you know where you have to stick your arms from time to time? I mean, and other people want to be a lawyer. And, and you know, I had done pretty well in uh, maths and science and things like that. So um, it seemed the obvious course of direction was to be an engineer. So I signed up for engineering. I remember telling the... Uh, guidance officer this the next day I'm going to go into engineering and he said to me Jeffrey do you realize that that's a cultural desert (laughs) (laughs) and indeed it was because one of the subjects we actually did as part of that engineering course was a subject called books right and I tell my friends about this now and, and, and what it was was that most of my peers in the course had never read a book in their life and so you know for a semester they forced people to read novels I'd actually always read so it was like well what's all this about but anyway, it was a bit of a cultural desert in that yeah. respect, I suppose. But uh, we got through all that and, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. So. And looking back at it, engineering's been a phenomenal attribute to your career. Yeah, enormously important, actually, because not so much from a, well, from a technical perspective, but it also it, it taught me how to think yes. and how to analyse situations and, and work pretty hard to come up with solutions. So, Jeff, going through university... Did you continue your sporting career? Because I can just detect that the power of team has become a pretty strong theme. Yeah, look, I did when I first came out of school. I played cricket in in Brisbane and what have you, but um, I let that go after a period of time to concentrate on my studies. And I guess, and similarly with rugby as well, and I guess if I had regrets about anything, that probably would be it, that I didn't sort of stick at it for longer. But, you know, it was a case of setting your priorities and doing what you had to do. But I did stay involved with sport, you know, from a coaching perspective and things like that. So right. it's not lost. So university complete and into the workforce. And you went out into an engineering role and started in the engineering. And when I was looking through what you were doing, you spent around nine years. Would that be fair to say in the engineering field before you started to bend into the mining? Yeah, more, more or less. I mean, I started as a design engineer and then sort of moved along from there. It was, it was at an interesting time, actually, because Queensland was, um, was absolutely booming. There was, there was a resources boom going on. Yes. And lots of development in, in that, that space. And so we got to, and, and the, the company I was working for, you know, got to work on some pretty fantastic projects, I have to say, in retrospect. So, you know, did a lot of that and then sort of rolled into 
project management, I suppose. So, you know, I was sort of, and how I got involved into more management thing was an interesting thing. I was, I'd done some design work on the Dalrymple Bay Coal Terminal, which was being built at the time. And, and I was due to fly out late that afternoon. And while I was sitting in the site office, the project manager said, oh, you're not doing anything. Have a look at these contracts. Tell me what you think about this, that and the other. Right. And I sort of picked these things up and started reading through it and pointed out a few things. And he thought, hmm, that was interesting. Actually, can you stay for a couple more days? And so that was sort of how I kind of got into that side of things. And it was pretty much by accident, I'd have to say. Right. It was definitely not by design. And when I went back and told the, uh, the head of the firm that I was going to move into this area, he said to me, oh, you'll, you, you know, you do realise what you're doing. You turn, <laughs> you're turning your back on the profession and uh, you'll never get back. And oh, goodness. Blah, blah, blah. It was sort of quite a bit of a threat if you, you step outside what you've you spent all this time learning. But anyway, it was just part of the evolution. And I think a lot of people go down the same path. And I haven't, you know, I mean, today I, I don't have the technical knowledge I once did, but I, I certainly remember a lot of those things. Yes. Formed a good foundation. Absolutely. It starts to get quite interesting in terms of your career going forward. So you've done your degree, you've gone in through, done a very good foundation in engineering, but then you move into elders' resources. Yeah. Well, look, prior to that, I actually did my MBA in Queensland. Okay, right. And, and that sort of, you know... That was an interesting experience for me as well, because what it was that I started it in Queensland, I should say, and I did it again in Sydney. But what was interesting about that was that it was, I joined this course, there was like, I remember on the first night, there was probably a hundred odd people in the room and they said, well, you know, by the time you get to the final year, there'll probably be about 20 of you left. Well, you know, there was about 20 left and the rest all fell out. But during that period of time, it was the first time for me to sit and talk to people in a whole range of different professions right. and to learn from their experiences. I, I always say I think I learnt more during the coffee breaks and, and uh, you know, discussions before the lectures started than what I actually learnt from course content in terms of talking to people about, you know, what happened out there in the, the world that I didn't know about. And it really opened up my you know, horizons and, and, and understanding of things and gave me, I guess, a bit of a feeling that there was a lot more out there than I perhaps had, had really, uh, really thought about. That MBA you finished off while you were engineering or post? Yeah, well, I wasn't doing hardcore engineering. I was in, into project management. Yeah, in the project like side. So, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. very much so. And then it was, you know, it was like a lot of people who do an MBA. I mean, bosses hate it because they, they learn stuff and then they go and leave straight away. And I did exactly that. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're, we're now in 1988 and Elders Resources is quite an interesting company. 49% owned by Elders IXL, which is at the time was such a phenomenal business. Mm. And you joined at a period when they were doing a reverse takeover of a New Zealand forest products created a major trans-Tasman resources company. Mm which is quite interesting period of time because it started as Elders Resources transformed itself from a gold company and a mining company into a diversified resources. In, it had, was active in investment operations and development. And here you land in 1988. It must have been very interesting. It, what attracted you to Elders Resources and how did the opportunity come around? Well, it's quite an interesting story in the sense that I never had any intention of doing this at all. Right. <laughs> and I, what I had in my mind from based on my MBA course and the times, as it was, it was a period where banking and the like was just starting to take off. And I sort of thought to myself, with my analytical skills, I could actually find a role in the banking industry somewhere. Anyway, I applied for a job with Elders Finance, not really knowing what I was doing. And I went to the interview and they, they said, look, you know, you're a really good candidate. 
who just you know, met a guy who's been in the business for 10 years and we're probably going to employ him in the role. But, you know, in the elders group, there's a you know, mining. Would you be interested in a, in a role as an analyst there? Right. And I said, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> and that's how I got into the mining industry, actually. I took a role as, a, as like a business analyst to start with and then went on from there. You know, so it was a bit of an accident. And as soon as I got there, I loved the business very much. Um, I loved the people and I loved doing things. You know, I've really sort of found a found a niche that, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be involved with going forward. When you were analysing the businesses, were you involved in the New Zealand forest products? No, I didn't, I didn't get involved with that one. I was in, I was in the mining sector of Elders, elders okay, Resources. Right. So, yep. you know, and when I look back now at the, some of the transactions we did, I mean, they were, they were pretty amazing and I'm really quite terrified actually at, at the fact that I had the audacity to suggest certain things, but uh, in hindsight, they sort of turned out pretty well. Jeff Lord, who was running the show, had a pretty simple philosophy. He used to say to us, look, you can buy whatever you like so long as it doesn't cost me any money. So basically the principle was that you would find an acquisition target, an underperforming asset, something with surplus assets, and you'd go in, buy it, strip out all the unnecessary sorts of things and sell those and pay for the acquisition and then you'd have the operation going forward. So that was a sort of a model that we, we tried to adopt. I mean, in the elders, in the um, New Zealand Forest Products one, that was a really interesting situation. Exactly that happened that, you know, the forests were pretty attractive, but um, New Zealand Forest Products was a little bit like BHP at that time in New Zealand. And they had um, an array of businesses, most of which were non-core. Right. And, you know, by going in, you know, including like fashion houses and Ferrari dealerships and God knows whatever else. So, they went in there, sold all these things off and actually paid for the acquisition. And that was a model that was used. The thing about that whole experience was, and it's very, very relevant to what we do at Perseus today, is that what I learned was that it's one thing to, you know, busily acquire, you know, to go looking at M&A opportunities and to take, make, do takeovers and all the rest of it. But if you don't follow through and integrate it properly into your business, you will suffer. In, you know, I say, if the back office doesn't keep up with the front office, you're going to have yourself a problem. And that's exactly what happened to Elders Resources in the fullness of time. The company imploded because even though they had the very, very best of people yes. and a lot of money to do what they did, they didn't actually convert those acquisitions into a, into a fully integrated business. So if you take Perseus as an example where, you know, we um, have done some acquisitions over the last five years, when we've done it, we've spent an enormous amount of time and then integrating that into our business just as we're doing actually right as we speak we've recently taken over orca mm, yes and you know there's a huge amount of effort going on right now in terms of integrating that acquisition into the way that we do our business and and taking it forward as part of the overall package so the, those elders days you know, left an indelible impression on me in terms of the importance of bringing the back office along with the front office so to speak with regards to elders and you said it imploded was that on the back of some of these acquisitions just didn't go right because of that integration? Uh, look, there's a lot of factors at the time. Yeah. I mean, the elders IXL ran into a few challenges right. and, and sold out their interests and there was a whole, whole raft of things that were going on. But I think that as a business, it would have survived better had it paid more attention to integrating the, some of these fantastic acquisitions that were done. Yes. So it was around 1991 that you then moved into... New Guinea mining. New yeah. Guinea, yeah. Mm. So that was what I would sort of observe as being pretty integral experience at Elders, which then set the platform again. So you've had that engineering, now you're into the finance and the business analyst, and now you're into mining per se. 
Yeah, no, it was an interesting situation. I mean, I sold uh, one of the properties that we did. Well, when when the elders, I elders resources started to run into a few issues, the elders IXL sold elders resources to Carter Holt Harvey, a New Zealand company who wanted the forest back. Right. They did not want any of the mining assets. So my job then became to sell all of the mining business, actually. And I sold all of the assets that had been acquired over a period of time. Now, one of those assets was, you know, almost closing the circle, the Red Dome Gold Mine, which was up in far north Queensland, not far from where (laughs) I lived as a kid. Anyway, I sold that one to New Guinea Mining. and, And what was pretty clear to me during the course of that sale process was that you know, New Guinea mining had a lot of uh, ambition and capability, but certainly lacked in, in some areas. And I thought that, you know, my skill set and, you know, might be complementary with what they were aiming to do. So I, jo- I approached Jeff Loudon, who was the executive chairman at that time, and said, Jeff, you know, you, you might actually be able to use a bloke like me going forward. And for my good fortune, Jeff agreed that that was the case. And, and I went into the business. They said to me, well, what do you want to call yourself? And I said, oh, what? I said, uh, well, Crocky, I don't know. Um, yeah, call me the commercial manager, I guess. How, how about that? They said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And it wasn't until sort of later on that I realised uh, that, that we had a major shareholder, Battle Mountain Gold, and they started to refer to me as the chief financial officer. And right. I didn't know what a chief financial officer was, but that was what the job that I'd been doing for quite a number of years was. But there you go. It's sort of, uh, you know, one thing rolled into the next. <laughs> This is a really interesting part of your time in terms of your professional career because this company had projects including Lahia Gold, mm. St Christabel Gold Mine and the Red Dome project you alluded to earlier. Mm. I'd just be really interested in how the Papua New Guinea experience was and particularly you, you had a, a fairly big role to play in Lahia. Mm. Yeah, no, it was. It was a, well, look, actually New Guinea discovered Lahia. The New Guinea geologists discovered Lahia. There's a lot of, you know, success has a thousand you know, fathers and everything. And there's a lot of people who'll lay claim to that. But the guys were, you know, who discovered that deposit were working for New Guinea mining at the time, uh, contractors. Anyway, they had this interest there. And it got to an interesting stage because Rio Tinto had ended up with a share in the project through various acquisitions along the way. New Guinea mining had a, had a share and the PNG government had a share. Now, New Guinea mining, or Rio Tinto had more money than it knew what to do with and, and could have funded it with but they didn't want to put any money into PNG. We were able to raise money to develop the project. The PNG government had no money. So what needed to be done was to find a solution to be able to develop that project, which was a joint venture at that time, and came up with the idea, put to Rio Tinto, that what they should do is lend their interest into New Guinea mining and uh, the government put their interest in and we'd raise the money in the public and build the project. Uh, Rio Tinto said, well... That's a terrific idea, but we uh, will we'll use a clean shell. Thanks very much, <laughs> <laughs> and and that was how the here gold actually formed. So they 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 floated or formed a new brand new company, raised four hundred million dollars of equity. And I remember the float. Yeah, and four hundred yeah. million of debt or something. I think it was four hundred fifty of equity and three hundred debt. I think it was at the time, and we got those things away, both both of the debt and the equity away, and it was it was pretty. And it was one of the early. Well, in fact, in many respects, it was quite unique because raised an awful lot of money for a project that you know, hadn't been built. The deposit was in a caldera on a remote island of Papua New Guinea. So, you know, marketing that and convincing people to invest was um, really quite a challenge. So, you know, that was, a, that was an, amazing, an amazing period of my life, I have to say, and uh, learned an awful lot from that. Just describe that remote island a little bit. Just for the listener, you know, you, here you are, you've come into the role you are, in effect, the CFO. 
And you're now dealing with Rio Tinto, you're dealing with the PNG government, you're putting together your interests as well into a new company called Lahir Gold. It sounds just, what an experience. You couldn't find an experience like this. No, absolutely. It was, extra- it was extraordinary, actually. I mean, we used to take investors up to Lahir and you'd fly them from Rabaul out, out to the island there. Fly there there's a, a grass airstrip there, you'd, you'd drop them off and then pick them up with a helicopter take them to the Discovery Knoll, which was a rock on the beach, basically, that had, where it had been discovered. Then what we used to do was take them out to the back of the caldera and say, look, you know, just walk into the beach and we'll have lunch. Well, you know, if you walk to the back of this caldera, which was only well, it's a couple of kilometres, I suppose, but jungle and steaming mud pools all around the place and right. things like that, by the time the investors had staggered out of the bush onto the beach, they felt like they'd gone from one end of the earth to the other. <laughs> And, you know, the, the narrative at that point was, guys, you've been walking over highly mineralised ground from the time we let you off. That is how big the deposit is. And it was really quite, people go, it seemed like they'd been walking for 10 years, you know. Yes. <laughs> so it was only, only an hour or something. But, uh, you know, it, it was really quite an, quite an amazing experience. And it was. I mean, we, when we floated it, there was an argument or a discussion went on for probably a couple of months. Was, was the volcano dormant or was it, uh, what was the other word? Or extinct, and and you know the lawyers had a wonderful time trying to figure out whether it was dormant or extinct. The fact was there was a whole lot of very hot bubbling mud pools out and about there, and I think you know the people who are mining it now, Newcrest. I mean, it is pretty warm down there. You know, they need to have cooling and things. like yes, that. Yes, yes. So yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting time. You know, Papua New Guinea in those days was a very different place to what it is today. And, uh, you know, I must say, you know, I made a lot of good friends in that period of my life and it was an extraordinary experience. One of the questions that also evolves from that, leading on from your experience with Papua New Guinea, it was dealing with the government. And this also moves into your ability to deal with government and the requirements of whether it be local communities and that sort of thing within Africa. With your role with Perseus, can you just describe how your initiations with Papua New Guinea government started and, and where you learnt how to deal and negotiate or I suppose work in with them is the best way to describe it? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I didn't have, in those days, in the Lahir days, I didn't have a, a very direct engagement with them other than through the community people and, and what have you. Yes. Uh, probably what you'd call now the sustainability team. Yes. But I was involved in the negotiations of the special mining lease, which took a very long time, I might say, to, and, and that involved the joint venturers and the government all sitting around the table on many, many, many occasions and, and arguing the points around how we we're going to take this thing forward. And I guess through that process, it really did give me uh, an understanding of the importance of uh, development projects for you know, emerging countries and how you know, the benefits of developing these resources really need to be shared equitably with the government and therefore the people of the of the country, given that first up we were guests in that country. Yes. And secondly, that if as guests we weren't welcome, then we really had no place to be there. You know. So that and that's been something that has been an extraordinarily important lesson and very, very relevant to uh, the way that Perseus has gone in, in West Africa because a very key part of our thinking is that, you know, if we don't have a social licence to operate, it doesn't matter how good the assets are or how good our people are or how rich we are, we really have nothing. And so as a pillar of our business, having establishing and maintaining that social licence to operate is fundamentally important to the success of the business. Yes, yes. Very interesting. That social licence 
is a really strong pillar I can see through your presentation is the way you present Perseus. But I just wondered, with regards to P&G, is that where it started, that sort of, that understanding and that requirement and that familiarity with what's needed? Uh, I expect it probably did. Yeah. It did come from there. But, um, you know, I think, and I think it also, I mean, it almost, you know, in a sense might have started back when I was a kid in the schoolyard in Mariba playing, um, you know, footy with the, all the Indigenous kids from around the place. Yes, you know, yes. And really coming to, you know, to understand that because I had a different skin colour or a different background, you know, that didn't really mean that much at the end of the day. We yeah. were all people and, and we needed to work together and get on with each other. So it probably started fairly early in the piece. But, of course, you know, working at a, you know, with governments in PNG, that was, that was pretty informative. And then I guess gave me some thoughts, but, you know, those thoughts have developed over many years subsequent to that. You know, at the time probably didn't seem like that. It was just another no. thing you did kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, sure. What a great experience. If we just fast track through a couple of these roles in terms of, I wanted to just highlight that you went out and then started in corporate finance yeah. with ABN AMRO. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a departure to the left, back yeah. into finance. Yeah, and that was an interesting one because what actually happened was at uh, Duguinig Mining, we, we had a 50% shareholder, which was Battle Mountain Gold, uh, a US gold company. Anyway, once we managed to get Lahir floated and everything running along the way that uh, we thought it would do, um, Battle Mountain decided that they really, you know, ought to take over New Guinea Mining and get rid of everybody. So I went to work one day. We were having a, a board meeting in Houston and I was in Sydney and going to hook into this thing and the boss rang me a little early and he said, oh, look, Jeff, got a bit of bad news. <laughs> What's that? And he said, well, look, I've just been fired and they're going to ring you shortly and you're going to get fired <laughs> and, and what have you. So it was a pretty unceremonious dumping after having... Um, you know, worked so hard to get this thing up and running. But um, anyway, as a result of that, I thought, Jesus, you know, this is this mining business has got whiskers on it. You work so hard, I might as well become an investment banker and, you know, make some money for myself, as it were. And so I did. I joined ABN AMRO. But what I quickly learnt in that, in that game was that I was coming to it much too late, notwithstanding the technical skills and insights I had. I mean, culturally, coming from a mining background into that is not the same thing. And I, you know, was a little bit uncomfortable in that setting, even though, you know, it was going fine. And I, and I did find my way back from the investment banking thing back into, into a mining business. But the lessons that I learned during that period of time were pretty darn important. Too, yes. And it really stood me in, in great stead going forward because it helped me to you know, understand how the capital markets really worked and the like, because I was in the ECM part of the business. And um, yeah, so that was a really, really useful um, you know, learning period for me for a short period of time. From there, you went back into mining, as you say. We, we, armed with all that experience and the commercial side now, or the ECM side, you've now gone into Oregon Minerals. Yeah. And that sounded like a, another amazing experience. Well, it really was. It truly was. Because what had happened was that while I'd post the Lahir uh, situation, the PNG government decided that they, well, their, their legislation gave them a 25% interest in every mining project in the country and a 20% carried interest in every hydrocarbons project in the country. So they had interest in everything that was going on in the place. Right. They decided that they weren't seeing enough benefit from, from those investments, as it were, and so they, what they decided to do was to stick them all into a vehicle and float that company. Now, they were told that, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to float the company unless they had a proper board and management in place to actually run the company. And so what they did do was they assembled probably the best board that I've ever been associated with in my life in terms of the quality of the people. 
and they offered me this role to sort of um, well to, to run it more or less from you know from a from a business point of view as yes. opposed to being a, the outward face of the thing. So um, uh, you know, I took I took that role on, and um, we had this portfolio of assets up there, and you know, we're able to uh, you know to operate that. Now, one of the projects that came along, and this is kind of interesting in in the current context of today, is that. We looked. We were working very hard at the Papua New Guinea to Australia or to Queensland um, gas pipeline project. Right. It was a very, very major, major piece of what we were trying to achieve. Now, you know, it didn't happen for one reason or another, and and PNG went to LNG and have been exporting it ever since. But you know, particularly in the context of the energy shortages in Australia today, had that pipeline been built and had had the government shared the vision of the people who were involved in it. Australia would be a very in a very different place today with its energy, and Queensland in particular would be in a very different place because that pipeline was going to run down the coast of Queensland, and you know as the Americans you know used to say to us, well, you know build the infrastructure and industry will come. So they weren't overly concerned that there wasn't you know massive industry already. Yes, and and you know look, it's it's one of these things you look back in hindsight and say, gee, that opportunity missed. It probably should have happened, but it yes. didn't happen. But that was a that was a, an, a really interesting part of uh, the whole thing. Yeah. It became quite a sought after company in the end, Origin Minerals, in terms of with the assets that were in place. And you alluded to oil development, producing oil fields, gold mines, gold deposits, Katubu, Gobi, Pogera, and Moran. It ultimately gets acquired by Oil Search, and in that process, also fields an offer from Santos. When I was doing my homework, it was quite an interesting position that Origin was in. Uh, and I was just interested, how did this evolve? And, and clearly it was a sought-after business. Yeah, look, it was, it was a bit of an interesting one, that one, I have to say, because, you know, through, well, one of the things that I did do, we, we were generating a lot of cash from our uh, interest in the, in the various projects. One of the things that I did do, and it was at a time when Octedi had, was not going well, BHP, you know, was in all manner of bother with, with, with Octeti and they wanted, really wanted to get out of the place. And so what I did was I actually bought BHP's oil and gas interests in Papua New Guinea from BHP and put them into, into Origin Minerals. Right. And they were willing to do that because, you know, with the government being a major shareholder of the company, there was, you know, sort of a political angle to it, I suppose, a, 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 um, you know, going, putting things back to the country. Yes. So, you know, we built up the portfolio of assets beyond what had start, you know, they started off with. And so it became quite an attractive target. Now, Oil Search, uh, at the same time, while we were doing, or just actually prior to us doing BHP, take buying BHP, Oil Search bought out BP out of, out of PNG. So they were starting to grow, we were starting to grow, and we were a bit of a competitor for them. We had a massive amount of cash on the balance sheet because... I'd been deliberately building up that cash war chest, as it were, to fund that PNG to Queensland gas project, or our share of it, I should say. Anyway, Oil Search looked at what we had, including the cash, and decided that that was a, going to be a, an important cornerstone for their growth. So Peter Botton, who was running Oil Search in those days, you know, came visiting and uh, companies ended up merging. And of course, Oil Search then also picked up our mineral portfolio and sold that off. So that involved interest in Porgra. Misama, we also had an interest in Ramu Nickel, which is now run by the Chinese and, right. and various other bits and pieces. So, you know, that was a bit of a shame in the sense that that portfolio got dispersed to the 
four corners of the earth. Um, also, it stayed with the, the oil and ga- expanded oil and gas industry I- assets. And of course, the rest is history. They've done an absolutely wonderful job in taking things from that stage to where they are now. I mean, the, you know, truly remarkable job and full credit to Peter for the job that he did in leading that company through that period of time. Thanks for sharing this, Jeff. It's so interesting. I want to then talk about your experience in the Philippines with Lafayette. You're Executive Director, Chief Financial Officer, and from what I was reading, this is where you actually met a gentleman called Reg Gillard through the process. (laughs) That's right. So can you just give us a bit of an insight? For the listener, Lafayette Mining was Melbourne-based, focused on the development of polymetallic projects copper, gold, zinc and silver on the island of Rapu Rapu in Philippines. Mm. How did that go with all your background? Now, we're now really putting together quite a resume here of experiences. And here we have another one in the Philippines. Yeah. Yeah, well, what actually happened was when after the uh, you know, oil search origin takeover, I was sort of pretty exhausted. That was, a, that was a very exhausting period of time. So I took a few years out, actually, and in that period of time out was actually probably the most valuable period of my life, truth be known, because I spent it with my children uh, and, and wife in, in, in Sydney and, you know, as a family unit we grew very close together and, and I was able to have a role in the development of my children who I'm very proud of today. So that was a really informative thing to do and, and, and very rewarding, personally rewarding thing to do. But, you know, after, after three or four years I sort of came to, or three years or something, I sort of so starting to feel that, I, you know, my son was becoming very dependent on me and I, and I wanted to give him some space, so I decided to better move away from some of these things. So uh, what I actually uh, I did was um, uh, people who have, uh, were involved uh, in um, Lafayette or actually they approached me and said, oh, you know, we're having to change the management here. Would you be interested in running the company? And I said, oh, well, just in having a bit of a chat about it. Anyway, I, I met the fellow who was running it at that time and he'd, he was an investment banker who'd stepped in to try and fix the problems that had already arisen. And he said to me, oh, yeah, look, you know, um, I've got a few things I've got to do here, but, you know, in the fullness of time, be happy to pass this on to you. Anyway, I went home and the next day he rang me and said, oh, look, actually, I've got to get rid of the CFO. Would you be interested in, <laughs> right. in joining it? And I said, oh, well, <laughs> I thought to myself, this actually could be kind of interesting because no better place to do due diligence on a situation from inside of the tent. So I did, I joined them in, as the CFO, but you know, within the first few days of being there, I discovered that there were some pretty major deficiencies in the planning of that project and what have you had occurred, and, and it was a hell of a mess, not only from a financial point of view, but prior to my joining, that had a, an environmental situation occur and they'd lost their licence to operate in the country, basically. Right. So, you know, I, I joined this situation and we set about this path of trying to resurrect the project, both from a commercial point of view and from a social licence point of view. After a couple of months, David Baker, who was the CEO, said to me, oh, well, Jeff, you know, things are looking pretty good now. Uh, I'll be leaving at the end of the week and, uh, <laughs> and you can move into the CEO role. And I said, well, actually, David, I suggest that you go and unpack your bags because you're going nowhere, mate. You know, we're going to have to work this one together and uh, see if we can do it. So he was happy to do that. And so David and I formed a a pretty close team to try to resurrect this situation. Now, we went a very long way to doing it. We had all sorts of challenges arise. We'd finally got the government to agree to restore the licence for us and we'd you know, raised a certain amount of money to be able to open up the project again. It was quite an interesting story because 
I'd raised, I think it was 15 or something rather million from one particular group. And we were approached by another group who said, actually, we would like the same ourselves. Would you be interested in extending this situation? And then I thought, well, you can never have too much money. And learning from Jeff Loudon about feeding the ducks while they were quacking and all yes, that sort yes. of thing, I thought, yep, no, we will do that. So we sat down to negotiate this second tranche of this deal and it started work at about six o'clock in the morning. And I left the office that night at about, Oh, close to midnight, I guess it would have been. And just before I left, they said to me, well, do you want to, do you want to sign the deal now? And I said, oh, no, bugger it. Let's do it tomorrow. So anyway, I went back to my hotel, put on the TV and was watching the TV. My phone rang. It was one of the guys from Rapu Rapu. And he said to me, mate, uh, we've just been wiped out. I said, well, what do you mean we've just been wiped out? He said, that typhoon. Then I remembered there was a typhoon was developing in the South China Sea that I had was aware of the previous day. Because I'd been busy, I'd forgotten all about it. This typhoon had hit the island and, and it had totally destroyed the, all of the infrastructure that had been built. So, you know, we went from a situation where we were very close to being able to, to start it off to having to almost go back to square one. I mean, that, that guy me. never signed that deal, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gosh. So, you know, that was a bit of a journey. And then, and, you know, ultimately, ultimately we failed. We, we weren't able to, to get it all together. We had to put the company into, into voluntary administration. Right. Um, we had a banking group there that was, you know, keen to to move things along, but they weren't keen to put equity into the business. And, you know, as responsible managers, you know, th- this actually taught me about, you know, in the CFO role about cash flow and what cash actually means. You know, I knew every day exactly how much cash we had in the bank, how much it was going to cost us to close the business down and to retrench people and all the rest of it. And, you know, what our what our float was. And, when we got to a stage where we were, you know, in danger of um, trading insolvent, we, we said, well, we just can't do this. And we, we put it into VA and everyone other than David and I were, you know, were, were remunerated for their efforts and, and we, we left it in as best shape as we could leave it. You know, it, that, that experience uh, dealing with the Philippines government, you know, dealing with the banking group in, in distress, you know, you learn, you learn a lot more when, from your from from bad times than you do from good times. Very difficult, yes. And and the lessons that I took away from that were enormously important. As you quite rightly said, Reg Gillard was the chairman through all this. You know, we formed um, quite a friendship during that period of time. It's interesting. Did you have to take your family down to Melbourne for that role? No, I didn't actually. Uh, they were in Sydney and yes. I used to fly down on Monday morning and come back on Friday night. Right, and, okay, uh, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, a bit of an interesting period of our life as well. Yeah, sure. Lafayette definitely would have been a, a pretty uh, solid anchor in you, in the way that you understood and, and approached things going forward, cash flow, particularly also understanding. I mean, when you're dealing with the Philippines government around these things, it certainly would have taught you a lot. Mm. Could you just, maybe if we go a little bit to the left and talk about family for a second, tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a uh, wife and two children. <laughs> yeah. Basically pretty yeah, boring, yeah. isn't it? I know, look, uh, you know, they're, they're two terrific kids and, um, you know, they, they followed their own lives and, and uh, getting on with things very well. In fact, you know, my, my son is actually over here now in Perth, lives in Perth, and right. Ryan is a, he's a doctor and, um, you know, he's in the, um, in the series of specialist physicians, so he's a, you know, on a training program over here. And uh, my daughter lives in Sydney and she's into marketing and all that sort of thing. Okay. So they're quite different in that regard. Yeah. Very different, very different children but you know happily everybody gets on extremely well unlike a lot of families um you know our two kids get on really well together and and are quite close to to mum and dad and they've remained on 
I mean, your daughter's remained on the East Coast. Yes, and yes. and uh, so I'm just sort of saying the transition went from Queensland to Sydney. You tran- you commuted for work through that period with Lafayette, mm. uh, and then came back to Sydney, and then here we are. We're talking about the next stage, which came into the Lachlan Ford Belt of New South Wales, mm. where you had an opportunity to work in another mining company, mm. Tri Osmin. I thought it was quite interesting. The ultimate move to Perth eventuated at some point, but um, did Reg Gillard have a bit to play in that? Oh yeah, no, he certainly did. Absolutely. No, I, I did go to, to Trailsman, and interestingly enough, I mean, um, the last thing I did at that company before I came over here was to introduce them to a, a WA firm that actually sought to develop the Woodlawn project, and I gather Billy Beaumont has recently bought it. So you know, it's sort of. I saw that. Yeah, so it, it's. I'm actually quite fascinated by that because uh, I, you know, I really quite liked that project, I must admit, all those years ago. But um, it was in a different space then to what it is now. But no, look, um, Reg, um, Reg was doing his thing over here and I was doing, you know, had gone to Tri-Origin uh, tri- after the, uh, you know, after the Lafayette thing. And uh, he approached me and uh, said, oh, you know, would you mind, would you be interested in coming over and work, working over here uh, in Perth at, um, at Origin Mineral, at uh, Perseus Mining? And... Um, I thought to myself, you know, that's not a bad, it's not a bad thought. He said, look, you know, we're in the process of, uh, you know, financing this project, Edicam, in Ghana, and, you know, we're going to probably have to develop it and operate it and all the rest of it. You know, come over. We'll probably get taken over before long, but, you know, it'd be quite interesting to come and see what's going on. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, this, that sounds pretty cool. You always like Reg. And I had never lived in West Australia before. So I took the role. And uh, I used to fly back to Sydney, you know, every pretty much every week to start off with, you know, go home. And so the family didn't move in the first no, instance. No, no, it didn't. It didn't at all. And um, you know, then things at Perseus got a bit more serious. You know, eventually I sort of I, I bought a place over here, and eventually, you know, uh, said to my wife, "Well, look, the kids have left, you know left left school now, and the dogs died. You've run out of excuses. You've got to come over." <laughs> <laughs> so w- when you started. So Troy Osman, you did that role. Um, Woodlawn was part of that, I, I read. And it was quite interesting looking at the Lachlan Ford belt and just understanding the, that sp- specific geology through there. Did that sort of run its natural course and then you thought, right, well, this opportunity with Perseus was definitely worth looking at? Uh, no, look, it hadn't run its course at all at that stage of the game. I mean, it was you know a viable thing. There was, there was quite a distance to travel before it was going to be developed, though. Right. And, um, you know, I was actually, I was actually looking, you know, for, for a little bit of a change. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, that I'd been very close to my son and, you know, coached him rugby and goodness knows what else for many years and all the rest of it. And, yes. And I really thought having, putting a bit of space between us was going to give him an opportunity to develop as a person without having dad hanging about. So yep. just by not being around all the time, it just helped that situation. So that was what I sort of thought about. It seemed like an interesting thing to do. That's pretty much it. Well, it seems like such a logical fit when you think about your background and where you've been brought up in terms of your international experience. Yeah, well, look, I don't think that point escaped Reg, to be frank. I think, you know, he's a pretty canny operator and, yeah. I, and I suspect that, that he recognised that, you know, through the challenges that we'd all faced and dealt with at Lafayette, that a lot of that was transportable to this emerging situation in Ghana. 
Yes. And so I, I don't think it was an accident at all. I, I just wish that he'd shared with me at the time that, you know, they might actually want to appoint me a CEO one of these days because <laughs> <laughs> it would have put a very different perspective on my time here, I guess. Yes. Well, this was, so we're at 2010 and this is the start of just a wonderful journey with Perseus in terms of what you've been able to achieve. And just bear with me for a minute, Jeff. I just, so you started out as Chief Financial Officer. You were then made Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer. The market capitalisation is currently in excess of $2 billion. You've got gold mines that are in the... Now, if you could pronounce this correctly, Cote de... Cote d'Ivoire. It's Cote d'Ivoire. And you've got also the one in Ghana. And then you've just made the current acquisition of Orca. Mm. Perseus is now situated as a multi-mine gold producer, developer and explorer and a multi-jurisdictional operator that can manage risk through portfolio diversity. It's quite an interesting position to be in right now when you go back to 2010 and see where you started. Mm. And that you didn't know if the family was going to come across. And, and then when you went back and said, right, there's no more excuses. You've got to come, please. Please. <laughs> yes, that was definitely part of the conversation. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could just take us a little bit on this journey and questions I had, Jeff, around it was what initially attracted you to Perseus? Africa is a destination for gold. The communities that you're involved in there, government challenges. It's well known that Perseus has a low cost production and that the importance of that head count over there and then the local population. I'd just love to know how you, ha you, you seem and appear in the way that I've read, you look very like... Very much like your hands-on person, face-to-face -face works best. COVID would have been a bit of a challenge. You've had some 12 years working in Africa now. And I'm just interested in all these questions. I was just wondering if you might be able to just take us through it on a journey that it sounds so challenging to start with, but what you've achieved is quite phenomenal. Well, look, it's an interesting, it has been an interesting journey. I mean, I kind of describe Perseus' story, or Perseus as the accidental miner. Right. So that's the that's the uh, you know the title of my <laughs> the third volume of my my, my books. But uh, no, you know, like I, I think that probably quite seriously, I'm not sure that the guys when they started off Perseus ever really believed that we would be a you know a proper mining company per se. Yes. They did think that you know having made discoveries and the like that someone would come and take the company out and that uh, it'll be their their assets would be part of a bigger portfolio somewhere. But you know, it didn't turn out that way. And I uh, took over from uh, Mark Calderwood in uh, 2013. And when the first of the mines had got operating and, and, and had run a year by that stage of the game. Now, you know, 2013 was a really, really tough year. As you probably remember, the gold price was falling. The investment market had definitely fallen out of love with West Africa. And, you know, the, the expression about catching knives was, catching falling knives was yes. very applicable for that, that first year as a CEO for me. In fact, the market capitalisation, I looked this up the other day, at the end of the first year of my uh, role there was about $100 million. So it's, you know, we were in a pretty deep hole. Yes. And we had to dig ourselves out. And um, so we, we set about doing that and, and got Eddie Can back onto a reasonable, reasonably even keel within a couple of years. But, you know, it became pretty apparent to me at least. And, and you know, we sat down with the board probably five years ago, five or six years ago, and said, look, you know, we can keep doing what we're doing as a single mine, single jurisdiction company, but it's an extremely risky way to, to make a living. You know, lots of things can go wrong, could take us out of business tomorrow without any real fault of our own. 
the best way to, to work this is to become multi-mine, multi-jurisdictional, have a spread of risk across a portfolio and to, to move it forward from there. And, you know, to be more substantial than what we are. So we set ourselves the goal of doing that, including saying we wanted to be producing 500,000 ounces a year by fiscal 22 at a margin of no more, no less than $400 US an ounce. That was the goal. It was set back in, I think it was 215 or something like that, that we did that. And then we moved on from there. So we had the Sosingi project. We had done feasibility work on that. We were setting about to develop that. Around the same time, you know, a series of conversations that I'd had over many years with the guys running Amara Mining, you know, came to fruition. Amara needed, had run out of money basically and needed somebody to work with them. We took over Amara Mining. They closed in 2016. Yes. That was the Aori project. Now, we went ahead and developed Sasingi. I can tell you the opposition that we got to that was quite extraordinary by people who told us we were complete idiots, didn't know what we were doing. And we should be holding our powder dry to develop Yayori. But we did know what we were doing. What we were wanting to do was immediately or as quickly as possible get a second jurisdiction going to spread that risk. Yes. To get a second income stream to spread that risk. To not risk the entire company in the development of, of a mine in a new jurisdiction. So it would give us an opportunity to learn how to work in Cote d'Ivoire versus Ghana. And it would also say to the government, it would cement our credentials as a, a corporate partner who could be trusted to deliver what they said they were going to do and to generate cash that could be used in the development of the AERI project. Now, as it turned out, that's precisely what happened on all fronts. We were able to, you know, learn how to operate in Cote d'Ivoire, which was different to Ghana, got good relationships with community and government. We generated enough cash from Sasingi to be able to fund the development of AERI effectively, our yes. equity proportion. And, you know, the rest is, they say, is history. So we, we rolled from Sasingi on to the development of Yayori. Now, I should say, when we developed Edican back in 2011, we probably made every mistake in the book. I, I joke about saying, well, <laughs> you know, we've got 12 volumes of, of lessons learnt from this thing. Now, we <laughs> yes. took those 12 volumes to Sasingi and we added another one. So we had, by the time we got to Yayori, we had 13 volumes of, <laughs> of lessons, lessons learnt. to learn. And we deployed every single one of those in the yes. development of Yayori. And uh, by this time, we'd also forged a, a good relationship with Lyca Podium, who's based here in Perth. And Lyca came to, came to work with us and, and we set about developing the Yayori project. Now, why the relevance of Lyco is that, you know, the way Lyco do their business, they front load the cost and they place orders with suppliers of goods and services. And as a corporate, you know, we always go, oh, gee, why are we paying this amount of money up front, as it were? But that actual initiative saved us enormously because unbeknownst to any of us, the COVID crisis was just around the corner. But by this stage of the game, all of the orders of equipment had been placed and were in the queue in, in the manufacturing centres around the world. And so when COVID came, all of the pieces that we needed were either already fabricated or well on the way, which meant that over the next year or two, we were able to get everything delivered to the site on time we were able to build that mine ahead of schedule and under budget. And, uh, you know, that today is now a, a cornerstone of our business going forward. It was a great team effort from, yes. from everybody. But, uh, you know, built on many, many years of experience and not only from me personally, but as a group where we had made, as I say, every mistake in the book. But we hadn't, you know, we'd, we'd taken the opportunity to learn from those mistakes and make sure we didn't make them again. When you look at the formation of these mines over time have you found you've had to lean on the government 
in terms of your negotiation skills a bit or the challenges that have come through from just left field? You haven't seen it coming, but then all of a sudden I remember. Oh, absolutely, 100%. I mean, you know, I would say there there are two lessons that we've learned, absolutely. The first is that we don't know everything. In fact, there's a hell of a lot that we don't know. And that's a really important lesson to know going into these situations because just because you do something in a particular way doesn't mean to say that it's right or it's the way that it's to be done. You really need to be open to reading the tea leaves, so to speak. You need to be adaptable. You need to be resilient. So that's that's super important. And they're they're lessons that have been learned over a long period of time. We we don't go in and say, this is the way it's got to be, folks. We, We have a very strong set of core values. We know what we're about. You know, the values of our company are, you know, fundamentally important. And what we, we seek to do is, without in any way deviating from those values, we seek to find a way to work in the countries that works for everybody. Because, you know, we take very seriously our corporate mission of generating wealth for all of our stakeholders. Our stakeholders include host governments, host communities, employees, yes. providers of goods and services and shareholders. And what we need to do is to chart our way through all of the challenges and make sure, that, and I should say the, the last part of our, our mission is to create that, that value in fair and equitable proportions and that's probably the key to it because, you know, if any of, of our stakeholder groups says, well, I should have more, it has to come at the expense of the other group. Yes. And, and it's okay, well, so who, who's going to give up their share so that you can have more? That's the fundamental question. So it's a thing that comes into play when you're talking to governments and employees, you know, all the time. So, yeah, well, we'd love to give you more. But, you know, if you increase your share, the shareholders don't get anything. And guess what? They won't give us any money to do this project. So let's sit down and have a, have a sensible conversation about how we can cut the pie here so that everybody gets something out of it. Thanks for sharing that, Jeff. That's really interesting. What would your headcount be at the moment? Including... Um, yeah, contractors and uh, temporary staff, I suppose. You know, at, at Edican, we would have probably about 1,600, 1,700 people and a similar number at Yayori and probably about 500 at Sasingi. And, you know, we're, we're in the process of building up Sedan, so that's why I'm a little bit unclear on the total, total head count. But yes. there's, there's quite a few people. I mean, we, have, we try to keep a number of people in our Perth office down to a minimum. Yes. So we don't have too many here. But out and about, we've got quite a lot of people, yeah. The challenge, and this is probably a wider topic, but the challenge of labour, are you feeling the effects of that being in West Africa or in these, in these regions that you're in, are you feeling the effects of that as much as we appear to be feeling it here in Western Australia? Yes, I mean labour, I'd just say human resources in general. Yes. Okay, yes we are, in, in, in certainly in the upper levels of the, of the business. I think, you know, but what has happened over a period of time is there's been a mass exodus from the industry per se yes, as a result of commodity cycles and also to the education system, particularly in the West, seems to be geared towards educating young scholars that, you know, mining's not the sort of business you really want to be in because they destroy the earth. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. That certainly has, has resulted in a lot of people who might otherwise have joined the industry doing something or other else. So I think there is a, a skill shortage out there. And, and as I say, that's at the upper levels. Look, in, in Africa itself, um, working for a mining company such as ours is a major prize. Yes. It's an income stream that simply isn't available to you in most other occupations in those countries. And so actually recruiting people is no issue. 
trying to make people understand that we can't employ everybody is a far greater issue. You know, fascinating, and that, and that yes. creates and that creates all sorts of tensions of of itself. You know, in a community where everyone wants a job, but frankly, we simply can't employ everybody. And how do you do that process without going into the depth of the detail? But if you have a community yep. of which your mind is parked alongside, how do we engage with the community in terms of job selection, job we have allocation? Community consultative committees right. at each of the mines, and um, and usually we have. It's not just one one village, it's usually a, a number of villages around the place. And they form a, a committee amongst themselves. And so we'll say to this group of people, Radio, well, we're going to need to employ X number of people. You nominate people who you think might qualify for the role. And then, of course, we interview and we do aptitude training and things of that nature to select which of those people may well be suited to the sorts of roles that we're, we're trying to fill. So it is a very consultative affair and... It's a very important piece. I, I say to people quite often, you know, like in conversations in, in Australia when, we, when it comes to the composition of your workforce, a lot of people have got very hard and fast ideas about gender quotas and this sort of thing. And, and we say, look, you know, we employ on capability alone. Yes. We don't set any targets or specific targets. The only area that we do have a bias and we, we don't step away from this is that if we have two employees, one of whom lives in a catchment area of one of our mines and the other person who lives outside, the local person every time will be favoured to get that role. But that's the only bias that we put into our selection policy. So as a result of that, um, you know, we do seek to maximise the um, engagement with the local community by offering employment. And as someone pointed out to me some time ago, it's kind of interesting in a way, I should have thought of it myself, but it had to be pointed out to me. But, uh, you know, there is an absolute nexus between you know, the relationship with your employees, the communities, and then their performance when they get to work. Because, yes. you know, the guys go home at night, the men and women, I should say, go home at night, they fit into the community. If they're not happy in their job, or the community's not happy when they come back the next day, they're going to be unhappy and they're not going to be productive. So yes, there's a very, very strong benefit in us making sure that our relationship with the community as a whole is strong and good and productive with our employees, and then we, as a group, benefit by having more productive workers going forward. Gosh, that's really interesting. Where I was looking through your performance as a company in the last half year, and it's quite phenomenal in terms of when I look at the numbers, your revenue is up 90%, profit after tax up 159%, operating cash flow up 137%, net intangible assets up 20%. It tells me that things have been reasonably healthy for the last six months. And is that a factor of the way that you've structured the business, which I'm sure it is, combined with the price, the lowest cost production? Yeah, how do you find that formula to be able to achieve what you've done? Well, look, let's, let's be very frank. We, we have been beneficiaries of a very strong goal price. So, yes. so it's not hard from, from that particular thing. But that's no accident either. You know, I mean, it was... We took a very deliberate decision to commit to construction and development at a time when gold prices weren't so high Yes, on the basis that we did have a belief that the cycle would turn and we wanted to be in a position to sell gold into the rising market rather than talking about developing during the rising market. So, you know, we, they say you make your own luck and I think this is an example of that. But, you know, so we, we have been beneficiaries. But look, I think as a business, we were just having a chat about this in the office this morning actually. We are not focused on production. We are focused on cash flow. 
Uh, you know, we said a few years ago we wanted to make a margin of $400 an ounce. I think it was 769 US dollar margin last, last quarter, if I'm correct about that. But, you know, we, we focus very much on having making as much as we can for every ounce so we don't pursue massive production if it's not going to generate income for us. And that's basically the core of it. It's the focus is on cash flow and the rest looks after itself. Yes. It's almost like you look back at that time in 2013 and you think, right, well, things have worked out. <laughs> well, I look back at that, but I also look back at my time at Lafayette when, I, as I said, I got to learn about what cash flow really meant because you had to pay the bills, right? <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. So, you know, those sort of experiences do stay with you. Um, you do have to pay the bills and you've got to, you know, if you, if you if, as I said, it was talking before about creating benefits, generating benefits for all the stakeholders. If you look at it, all of the stakeholders, other than, say, shareholders, their benefits require cash. Yes. So you, you need to generate cash. Now, you know, shareholders also want cash in the form of dividends, but they also get benefits through capital gain. But all of those other stakeholders, it's cash. If you don't make cash, you can't generate benefits. So that's the, that's the linkage there, and that's the focus. Jeff, after all this time in West Africa, can you just tell us a little bit about why you love it? <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> All oh, this no. time. I mean, you must have some fond memories and you look forward and you go, wow, I can't believe we've achieved this, but what we've got coming is just amazing. Oh, yeah. Look, every day is different. Every day has got a new set of challenges and that's, that's kind of what I like. But I have been exceedingly privileged to meet some fantastic people along the time and, and to have some experiences that there's no way in the world any other person would be able to have them. And if I could just sort of divert slightly on this. so. Before we developed the Sisingi mine, we were in Ghana and they asked me if I would come over to attend the first community consultation meeting with the villagers around what was going to become the Sisingi mine. Yes. Uh, and I said, oh, you know, no problem, I'll come over. Of course, I, when I stepped out of the airport in Abidjan, it occurred to me that a civil war had just ended you know, a couple of months ago. And there were flames, marks and bullet holes everywhere and all the rest of it. And I thought to myself, Jesus, I'm not sure about this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we drove up to Sisingi. It was like a you know day and a half drive. You know, Went through roadblocks every couple of hours sort of thing, looking for mercenaries, et cetera, et cetera. That was a bit of an experience. But we got up to Sisingi and we had the meeting with the community. And now, as it turned out, the community was very, very receptive because Cote d'Ivoire had never had much development in the north of the country. And this was an opportunity for people to see some development come through and they were very welcoming and enthusiastic for us to be there. And so the meeting went very well. It was kind of interesting because I could speak English. I think maybe one or two others could, a smattering could speak French and the rest spoke the local dialect. So communications were interesting, let me say that. But anyway, whatever we said and did was to the liking of the local community. Anyway, we were finishing up the meeting and uh, one group came across. They, they had the, the place was sort of segregated, where the officials sat on one side, the women sat on another side, and the youth sat on another side. Oh, the women and the lesser officials, as it were. Anyway, the youth came over and said, "Look, we're pretty happy about this. We wanted to do a dance for you." you know, so a bunch of these people right. came out and they <laughs> wanted to do a dance, and they had, you know, like traditional gear on. There were fifteen villages in this area, and of course, the next group said, "Well, hang on, if they can do it, we can do it." And the next thing. <laughs> We had, you know, 15 villagers having a dance-a-thon in front of us here, <laughs> all of them with very different, you know, different experiences and stuff like that and clothes and all the rest of it. And I was thinking to myself, you know, 
actually, you know, these these kids don't look too much different to what you see on MTV, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Given that, you know, the same racial origins, that's not entirely surprising. But, you know, the thing was that it gave us that experience just brought to me how I was getting a insight into the culture of this country that simply would never be available to a tourist. Yes. And I was being welcomed into into their community, you know, as a as a sort of a, an honoured guest, as it were, and being given a real insight. And I, that's something that I, I super treasure, super treasure. I think I've been absolutely privileged and blessed to, to have that sort of opportunity. Such a unique insight. Absolutely. Oh, look, thanks for telling the story. It's been a really good chat around your experience there. I, I need to ask you if it's okay, Jeff, just a few rapid-fire questions. First one being... You touched on it earlier, but mining as a career of choice. The challenges we have today in terms of attracting people towards mining, we've got ESG as front and centre. Could you just give us your view on, on this in terms of why someone would choose mining or why wouldn't they? I can see why people don't or young people don't want to, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't take place necessarily within walking distance of your nearest coffee shop. It's usually in remote areas and can be, you know, uncomfortable. It does take you away from your family and your friends, and that can be can be something that people don't want to subscribe to. On the other hand, it is enormously challenging and enormously exciting, and I think that the you know the misinformation that's given to children about destruction of environment and all the rest of it is simply not right. I mean, I th- the the most active and strongest environmentalists I've ever come across have often been part of our environmental teams on our sites. Yes, you know people who really love the bush and love being out there, and that's why they're actually there, and they they look after that land as if it's their own. So you know, I think that there's a lot of misinformation around that. The other side of the thing is that you know people can sit and criticise and say, oh well, you know we should do this or we should do that. Well, if you look at the opportunities that I've had, I can go out and help people in villages to have a better life. Yes, and so that's enormously re- personally rewarding. So I think that. You know, quite apart from the financial benefits of doing it, the challenges, there are opportunities to actually improve other people's lives. You know, being a, uh, you know, a, a pen pusher in an office in a capital city doesn't necessarily afford the same opportunity. It provides a certain reward, as you've alluded to, that you can't find in many places. It's quite interesting. When you look at the current environment with mining, cost inflation and labour, you alluded to labour. What about costs? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, anyone who says that there isn't cost pressure has actually not looked at their, uh, you know, their reports lately. Yes. There is definitely cost pressure uh, right across the board. And the next couple of years are going to be challenging for a lot of people, make no mistake about that. We, um, you know, are, are reasonably, we've been travelling okay recently, but I suspect that that won't last forever. And we, you know, we, we work very hard at trying to find ways of to bring our cost base down or keep our costs under control. Bearing in mind our focus is on making cash flow, not on ounces. So what that means is that it may come a time where the costs of, of an operation may be such that you, you would prefer not to produce rather than to lose money yes. uh, on the ounces. But, you know, cost inflation is something that is with us. We've had a pretty good go for a long time. Yes. But what we've got to do now is to, to manage through this situation. Now, you know, there's not very many advantages of being an old person like me. But one of them is that I've worked through this scenario before. I mean, when I, we were talking earlier about my time up in PNG, I remember that you know gold was around two hundred dollars an ounce at one stage, or two fifty dollars an ounce, and uh, I took a lesson from that because the people that survived that period were those who were willing to take strong action to pull their belts in, yes, and to really 
make every dollar count. Now, when they came out of that, a lot of people just let the, you know, the horses run immediately and didn't do so well. But those who, who, who actually exercised that constraint and then still maintained that discipline when prices ran have been the ones that have developed into the very large successful companies. And I think that's what we want to do. We're going into this, this scenario now where we know there's cost pressure coming, so we've got to get ourselves ready for that. And then we've got to be super disciplined and then hold that discipline through into the next phase of the cycle. Is there many levers you can pull on the cost of production? There's a few, but after a while, at the end of the day, you know, it really does come down to what's in the ground. Yes. And okay. where, it's, where it's located. Yep. Okay. Well, the, the subsequent question to that is an obvious one, but um, the price of gold. Yep. Without having to stake your claim to a number or anything, but how do you see it unfolding? We, we've seen a very interesting time in terms of inflationary pressures and, and higher inflation, higher interest rates. We've had the advent of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. How do you see gold play a part in all this? Look, I, I don't know. I don't profess to understand how the markets work at all. In fact, you know, if, if one thing I do know is that I don't know. Yes. So that said, I, you know, I can sort of see that looking into the future that there's enough factors around that will create a high level of uncertainty for a period of time and that has to be good if the traditional measures are, are, are apply to, for the gold price. So I think that you know, on balance, we can be reasonably confident that the gold price will at least hold up for some period of time. But, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier on, our focus is on cash flow. Our yes. focus is on margin. And so even if the gold price was to drop, we need to bring our costs down so that that margin's maintained. Remained, yes. Okay. When you look at the current climate with regards to global stability and that sort of thing, and the interest rate pressures and inflation. And I mean, we're seeing quite challenging times in terms of we've got the Russian-Ukraine conflict and, and commodity prices are moving on the back of that in terms of the food price, wheat particularly, and grains. How do you see, and you may not have an opinion on it, but just have you got any view on how this may unfold? Look, I don't know how it's going to unfold, but I certainly know what the impact is. I mean, Sudan is a classic case in point. Now, yes. Sudan gets most of its wheat from... Uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. That's a serious challenge for them right now. Um, country is largely desert. There are some arable areas. I think that, you know, Sudan is in for a very challenging time if this matter isn't resolved favourably going forward. Now, how, how is not to say that, you know, it needs to be a uh, settlement in Ukraine necessarily, but what I do think is that donor countries like the West, the US and Europe can certainly play a part here in, in making other grain supplies available to some of these people and it's not just Sudan I mean the whole of sub-Saharan Africa or Saharan Africa actually you know uh, Egypt, Eritrea, Ethiopia uh, all of those countries are in the similar position. So it is a real problem going forward if we don't come to some sort of solution or being able to at least import grain or supply into these countries? I believe it is. And, and to put it in probably undiplomatic and, and basic terms, I mean, the vote that occurred in the United Nations recently around the Russia's activities in, in Ukraine, I think Eritrea voted in favour of the proposition. I think Egypt, uh, Sudan and Ethiopia declined. Now, I would put it to somebody to say that, you know, this isn't the case necessarily that these countries... Uh, you know, are firm friends with Russia as much as these countries all like to eat. Yes. And and their political positioning is as a function of their concerns around food security because they know that if they can't feed the population, 
that leads to instability and that leads to all sorts of other things. So, look, there's all sorts of linkages there and I think, you know, unless we address some of these these, these challenges, we're going to have some interesting times ahead. And, of course, I guess, if you know, being a cynic around it, I suppose you'd say, well, that's good for the gold price. But, honestly, we, we as, a, as a gold company don't want to trade on the world's misfortunes. No, no. I can see that very clear. Thanks a lot for sharing those. If I could just maybe go a little bit left and ask you about your sporting ambitions. I did pick up that you had a had some affection towards AFL, but I've since learned that you're probably more of a rugby tragic than, than an AFL lover. Just tell us a little bit about, you know, and I think where I'm coming from here is what I've learned is you love your team sports and, and they've had a bit of a role to play in your upbringing, particularly at boarding school at Brisbane and and then going on and playing a bit of cricket, but you still have an affection for it. Who are your favourite teams out of the West? I'll just have to ask. In the AFL phase, because I think rugby might be a bit limited. But Yeah, well, I, I must say, you know, tragic is probably the right term. I, I am a, a fan of the Eagles at the moment, and that's quite tragic, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> but anyway, every dog has its day, right? So uh, we're not too worried about that. But I would actually like to see the Western Force come to something. You know, I did think that the way they were treated several years ago it was exceedingly poor and uh, and it was a real shame because I do think the potential of the youth in WA in that area in that sport is very, very large and uh, and is unharnessed. So I would like to see Western Force take their rightful place in, in Australian rugby terms. Yes, yes. And you like cycling? Yeah, yeah, I do, I do, yeah, I do actually. How do you go, uh, do you get up in the mornings and go on long rides or what is it? Riding on the weekends? Uh, well, you know, I get up uh, most mornings or every, at least every second morning and, and, and you know, get around the rivers and what have you. And yeah. It's terrific. I love it because it uh, gets me away from my phone and away from emails and, you know, gives you good thinking time and it's pretty healthy as well. Well, look, I just wanted to say in finishing up, it has been a wonderful opportunity to have a chat to you. You've got so much experience and what you've uh, actually done in your life is quite, as I said to you right before we started, Jeff. It is quite amazing what you've done and the places you've done it, the experiences you've had, and there's just so much to go. I can see when I watch your body language and the way you talk about Perseus, there's a lot of affection and a lot of passion around it and what you've learnt. And I would like to say on behalf of all of us at Euros Hartleys, just thank you for taking the time out and sharing with us because it has been a real treat and thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. thanks very much for having me. I must say I don't make a habit of delving back into the past too much, but uh, it's been an interesting journey to share with you and thanks very much to you and your, your listeners. Good on you, Jeff. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.